You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you, back once again with Sherlock in Shanghai by Cheng Xiaoping, translated by Timothy C. Wong. We are in our second week. We are going to be talking about Entry 4, the examination paper, Entry 5 on the Huang Pao, and the sixth story, The Cat's Eye. And Herds, today for us you are going to be unraveling the plan of Ho Sang 4 on the Huang Pu. You know what? I, I've said so far I'm finding these stories to be fairly predictable. So in that sense, I don't know how much trouble we can have with this, but to truly know the inside of the mind of of Chinese Sherlock, uh, Mr. Huo Sang is, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a tricky time. I think it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a puzzle for me. Um, he's acted uh, somewhat differently to Sherlock in the past, so I'm uh, I'm excited to see how I go. So our first story in this little stretch here, the examination <laughs> paper, the honestly was the most bewildering thing I've read <laughs> in a murder mystery in a long time. H- how so? How is it bewildering? It's the most simple thing I've read in my entire life. I what know, and that's what blew me away. <laughs> it's literally just Balang has an exam. He's he's reflecting back on when they initially became friends. And the story is about Balang sitting down, writing an exam out, and then writing a letter to his mother. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the exam goes missing. Where could it have gone? And one of his friends, who's also in the same class as this difficult philosophy paper, runs out of the room. Another friend who's there is just kind of chilling. One of his nemeses at the university comes in and asks to borrow a pen. It's a catastrophe. It's just, it's just pure chaos. Look, I, I love this story. I don't know, I don't know if bewildering is the right word, but it is. Fantastic, because it is such a simple story. I'm going to spoil it for you. What what ends up happening is that we realize that even though we have, you know, three of these suspects, each with means, potentially a motive, like for us seasoned murder mystery veterans, there's all sorts of rhetoric we can get into about the nature of collaborations and, and accomplices. But what it essentially boils down to is that Ho Sang walks in the door, speaks with, with, with his good friend Bao Lang and says, ah, I've, I've figured it out. And he, he walks back and comes back with the letter. And it turns out that when Bao Lang went to like put his, his like mother's letter on the table to write it out, it was like over the top of the examination paper. So both papers were taken out by the, the, the janitor who was going to go mail the letters for him, mm-hmm. which is like, <laughs> I don't know if it's a, a, a compelling story and this it's no like high speed river chase or anything like that. Uh, but but there is, I think, a, a certain beautiful simplicity of this story because the moral at the end, which uh, Horus saying actually spells out for us, is that because Bao Lang was so close to the mystery, you know, he was the one who was getting flustered and worried, that Horus saying, having a, a sort of objective perspective, was able to figure out exactly what was wrong and fix it, mm. which is excellent for, you know, most people and, like, teaching people good reasoning. Uh, and also, I think, justifies... Bao Lang on a character level, it justifies why he hangs around with Rose Saint because, you know, you need a detective to figure things out when the people who are too close to mystery don't see the obvious, or, or I should say the less obvious but simple explanation. Yeah. It's really interesting because I think that in many ways this story is deconstructive of so many elements of standard murder mysteries, be it the old don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity, 
be it just analogous to kind of the whimsy of overcomplicated things in detective stories in the first place, there's like sure. a bunch of layers that you can unpack on how deep this story could be going <laughs> onto the murder mystery genre. But really, it's just a silly, farcical little thing about someone losing a letter. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, that's why I think it works so well. It's only, I think, four pages long in the, in the copy that, that I'm working from. And I don't think it needed to be more than that. Yeah, I also think that because this story was a lot more simple, the translation in this one came across a lot better. There's a lot of the kind of goofy intricacies of how the characters speak to each other and the say it ain't so's Mm -hmm. that I think just flow a lot better because the simple story isn't bogged down with trying to be linguistically clever. There's something really charming about that. It's just he sat down and said, well, how am I going to explain the origin story of my two characters. And it's not, you know, the, the queen asked us both independently to solve a murder and then we ended up working together out of mutual respect. It's just, oh, I lost my exam paper. Help me, Hossein, come here. It, help me out as a friend. I do love the way that their relationship is portrayed in this story too. It's, it's just so uh, comfortable. Yeah, You know, yeah. a lot of the other murder mystery partners that we have through history, I particularly think back on uh, Archie Goodwin and Nero Wolf and seeing how their relationship is functional through being dysfunctional. Yeah. Where Archie is very much the literal legs of the detective who mm. cannot get up and walk around. Whereas Hosang and Balang, it's literally just they're buddies at university and they work well together. There was never any trouble. They don't have any kind of crazy problems. No, it's just very simple. I, th- I think there is something to be said also that the, that we, we now have established that the Bao Lang is an intelligent human being, right? He's, he's not the, the kind of parody Watson who's like, you know, looking at the ground with his magnifying glass and saying, Oh, Sherlock, I found a clue. You should take a look at this. I, by Jove, I think it is a clue. Like, there's none of that nonsense. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I, I write philosophy papers. I am an intelligent human being. We see there's much less of a gap between these characters. I think that, though, there is a difference here that is exemplified in, in the third story, actually, mm-hmm. um, that we're going to be chatting about this week, Cat's Eye, in which Horseng and Bao Lang, they uh, pledge to protect a, a small gem. They're defending it from the South China Swallow, uh, who is kind of a Robin Hood type. That's kind of his, his yeah. character, it seems. He's he's listed in a footnote by the translator, mm. Timothy Wong, here as effectively the Moriarty-esque nemesis yeah. of, uh, of Ho Sang here. But it's kind of interesting because unlike the unbridled intellectual monstrosity that we typically see, for example, Moriarty portrayed as in modern Sherlock adaptations, the South China Swallow is really just, as you say, this kind of Robin Hood guy who almost ends up always doing the right thing, yeah. but getting away with a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's getting away with what he what he wants. Yeah. Because his intent was stealing this cat's eye is actually so that he can donate the money. But uh, it, it turns out that uh, in in the end, even when the South China Swallow believes that he has gotten away with the goods, he he returns it and says, I heard about you making that rich man, you know, pay the orphan kids money in exchange for protecting this gem so you can have it back. And I'll even forward some of, some of my money that, that I have mm. lying around to, to meet you, to meet you on that. Yeah. Uh, and then Horace Singh says, well, that wasn't my intent to like, 
help this this other rich man out. I wanted to punish him. So yeah, it's this whole it's this whole debacle. Yeah, there's also this weird moment in uh on the Hong Pu that I'm excited to get to. Oh boy. Because he doesn't have like a huge role in the story, <laughs> but he just kind of swoops it at the end and you're like, what? what? Where did that come from? Oh my goodness. It's very interesting looking at it compared to particularly Van Dyne's rules. And I know we love trashing Van Dyne around here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, you know, Van Dyne's rules were very much about having the criminal of a murder mystery be this great intellectual equal to the detective <laughs> so that you can so that you can have this great contest that the reader can participate in. And to some extent he's broken that because a lot of the crimes and criminals in this aren't particularly well thought out or uh, criminal mastermindy, but at the same time, they do actually kind of equal Ho Sang. Yeah, Ching Shao King is putting Ho Sang constantly into situations where he is an equal in one way or another to his opponents, whether it be intellectually or physically. We'll obviously talk about on the Huang Pu a little bit more in the the second half of the of the show here, but he intellectually is rivaled by uh, the South China Swallow, but physically in in this story in particular is matched by the pirates he's putting himself against. So even though the characters here are not intellectually his equal, the danger and the force of arms he's being put against is his equal. Anyhow, Herds, it's that time of the show where we have to talk about the puzzle we've set for you on the Huang Pu. Mystery. This story, a child has been abducted. Another child, in fact, has been abducted. Indeed. By a that, yeah. group of pirates along the Yangtze River. Ho Sang has gone in with a plan to rescue this child while being <laughs> unarmed. Yes. Unaccompanied. Well, except for his trusty uh, Bao Lang. Of course, of course. We'll talk more about the actual story as we get into the beginning of next part, but just flat out on the table, sure. what do you think the plan is and what do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to be one of those, uh, is it MacGyver style solutions where like Prosang has brought various like items along with him. I think they're all going to factor into it. I think they're all going to factor into the solution. And I think that the half a ransom money uh, ploy here is actually just to solve for time so they can be on the boats. I think they're going to overpower the guards and use the handkerchief yeah. that Bao Lang has. He said, you know, what if we get sweaty? I think he's going to actually uh, tie the handkerchief to probably the flagpole because that was made a big, a big mess out of to signal like the cops. Because as long as, as long as the like pirates are trying to get the ransom, they got plenty of time to like secure the kid and and give the police time to like get on the boat and get everybody out of there. I think that's what's going to go happen. That's what's going to go down. Well, herds, we will be back with that for the last part of the show today. I'm excited to see what you think of the next part of this story because it's an absolute riot. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> it sounds insane to me. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Sherlock in Shanghai by Cheng Shao King. We are talking the fourth, fifth, and sixth stories in that collection today. We are Flex and Herds, and we'll be back with that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. On the line right now, I am joined by Benjamin Stevenson, author of Either Side of Midnight. Benjamin, it is so good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's one of these exciting things because I think uh, when we look at people like yourself who go uh, both on the writing side and in the publishing houses, there's there's a really unique skill set, I think, that people like you have for understanding how... 
the broader context of literature works. Yeah, I think I, I get, especially in the thriller genre, which I consider my specialty, both obviously because I write it and at work, um, I think it's a genre that's really defined by certain rules and certain systems that readers kind of uh, anticipate will be in every book of that style. And so it's how you can either subvert them or adhere to the rules because in some ways people, are, it's actually what they're looking for. So I don't think any authors really laid it down in a way that I could just say, oh, such and such has a great um, list. Uh, but I think that avid readers kind of pick up the same sensibilities of the rules. So it just kind of lies under every, everything, except for one rule that I have seen written down and that I always write down is don't kill the dog. That's the rule. <laughs> I, good, good advice, good advice. Now, I, I think that's kind of a good lead in to uh, the question I had that you know led us to having this discussion today, which is when we look back at the kind of quaint old rules of Knox, of Van Dyne, of the old masters of the golden age of detective fiction, Compared to the thriller writing that we have today, compared to the very intense crime fiction that we have in today's stories, what's driven that change towards these big, long, mind-bending twists and turns through all facets of society compared to the country house mysteries of the golden age? I kind of think there's two things that have driven major changes, and one is the visceral nature of newer works and the way that the world's opened up in terms of censorship in, in their films and, and stuff. So certain crime and thriller novelists and films as well can be trying to top that certain element, so push the envelope by having a really, really sadistic serial killer or, or you know, Hannibal. Or, so those kind of things I think take the opportunities of our changing interpretations of censorship and what's appropriate uh, across literature and push it to certain extremes, whereas older mysteries are often quite quaint. Oh, he's got a letter opener in his back, does he? Now they can have multiple victims, higher body counts, really nasty bad guys, which also pushes the suspense element potentially up because the element of danger can get quite a bit higher. Uh, and so I think that's also changed quite a bit as well. The old-fashioned ones, I think, often target the cerebral part. You want to solve the puzzle. Um, and I know that, you know, Sherlock Holmes gets thrown off a waterfall by Moriarty, but it's not he's not often in significant danger in the same way that protagonists find themselves in now. So I think that the suspense um gets lifted in that kind of way from there. And then when we look at your latest release, Either Side of Midnight, you know, you come out the gate with this phenomenal opening on the the set of uh, Midnight Tonight with Sam Midford, and the punchline of that prologue really just drives home the intensity that I think the rest of the book carries on really well after kind of simmering and letting you uh, crawl back into the kind of explosive nature of that introduction. You know, when it comes to delivering these huge, big set pieces, how do thriller stories and the stories you work with and write with try and keep that energy? What's the trick to you know helping people visualize these big moments uh, in a time where a lot of writers tend to be eschewing uh, the adverb for not wasting words? To be perfectly honest, the way to make big 
scenes feel big is to write them small. Uh, I think that you really have to nail the characters inside that big scene and then it doesn't matter where they are or what they're doing, you know, they could be in a basement talking to each other or they could be having a final showdown on top of a skyscraper and it will still feel intense because you're with the characters in their shoes. So that's how I kind of see it. And then the the other thing that really interested me reading through either side of Midnight was the way that it tackles with the the modern world so directly, be it that the you know titular murder case of the story is broadcast on TV and getting through uh, Jack opening the story behind bars, basically. I guess for me as a reader who tends to dwell in the golden age of detective fiction, because that's where this show has kept me for so long, you know, what, are, what are the exciting things of getting to toy with these big concept, global, millions of people ideas? What's fun for you as a writer about being able to just you know, blow that scale up, as you were saying? I think I like asking questions about the genre and and trying to give something really unique to readers that may have written read a lot of crime. Uh, so for me with this book, I was very interested in doing something more than who is the killer. And even though it follows the traditional structure of figuring out who the bad guy is and then the bad guy is revealed in a hopefully surprising climax, and what it's really looking at is what is murder? Yeah. You know, and, and how how can certain things happen and, and why can they happen? But really, if we're looking at murder mysteries, my book is saying, yes, it is a murder mystery, but it's a murder mystery because I'm redefining murder itself, which I thought was a, a very challenging thing to take on. Yeah. I mean, I think particularly for writers like Cheng Xiaoqing and S.S. Van Dyne, who I guess though it's not the formal term for them, I would call them kind of second-generation Golden Age authors who are commenting on the works of other Golden Age authors. They tend to lean on that psychology in a similar way where you're looking at what is murder, looking at the how and the why done it rather than just the puzzle. And the other thing I wanted to ask before I let you go, Benjamin, is you have had an award-winning collection of stand-up shows uh, from the Melbourne International Comedy Festival through Edinburgh Fringe, and I think that reading through this book, I could kind of, I could get a get a sense of of comedy creeping through. How is it that you can effectively bring comedy, bring a bit of lightheartedness to temper the tone of a book that is as intense as either side of midnight? I think comedians have the blackest sense of humor out of anyone you'll ever meet. Um, so it's oh well, that and ambulance drivers. I think they have a very <laughs> very dark sense of humor. So I think I was able to use that dark sense of humor to my advantage. I think. Though, you know, I, I wanted to make sure it's not a humorous book, but I think that my lead is reasonably, you know, partial to a witticism every now and then. But I also, I knew I was writing a very, very dark book. Anything that deals with the themes of suicide, I think, is is something that, that is dark and especially modern mental health and the topics that I dealt with through the novel. So I wanted to make sure that it was, was to be honest, still enjoyable to read. Like I don't want to beat readers over the head with the themes and the morals of the story. A comedian is really just a good observer and as is a good novelist. So I'm really just using the same skills where normally you try and draw a laugh out of somebody, even if I'm just describing a scene. It, it's it's observation and it's noticing the small things and, and turning them, whether it's a sentence or you are looking for that punchline. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's kind of like 
a, a nice parallel to the role of the detective, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's all all comedians, writers, even you know musicians. Everyone's playing detective. You're just trying to read people and and make them feel something um, by observing them. Yeah, well, fantastic. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. Thank you for having me on. Either Side of Midnight is out with Penguin Random House Australia, September the 1st. Get yourself a copy. I've had a blast reading this book, and it's, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you so much for writing this. It's been a hoot. No worries. Thank you for reading it. Appreciate it. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you today. We are discussing Sherlock in Shanghai by Cheng Shao King. Stories four, five, and six. At the beginning of this episode, we were talking particularly about stories four and six as we went through our thoughts generally on them. But we made Herds stop a little early in the fifth story on the Huang Pu so that oh he could solve what. Ho Sang's plan was. I don't know if Ho Sang knew what his own plan was, honestly. Herds, I just, listen, you're getting your point. Let's just get that out on the table. Well Good. done. I'm okay with that. Well done. Oh it was goodness. that they were going to signal for the police after overpowering, though admittedly not through direct physical force, the two guards well, in the room. You, you say that. But <laughs> they were like, here are your cigarettes that have drugs in them. And then one of them tried to get up, so they just knocked him down. So they. They overpowered at least one of them and then shot a cook yeah. in the leg. They, over, you know? they overpowered them with science. Science, yeah, that's exactly it. Look, I just want to say, loved it. I'm disappointed that they didn't literally tie the handkerchief from the the flag post, like, rep, like you know, pulling down the five blessings with the bat symbols on it and replacing it with a handkerchief. I think that would have been way cooler because it would have been like a white flag. Yeah, surrender. yeah, nice bit of symbolism. I think that would... I, I, look, I'm just saying... Cheng Chao King, if you would like me to help you put more symbolism in your works, call me up. Let's have a conversation with an interpreter. A three-way call. Let's do it. Now, the the one thing that I do have to say about this story, Herds, is that it yeah. it tries so hard to bait and switch you <laughs> yeah. in every possible opportunity. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, we've got the flag to summon the police. It's like, oh. The police went home with they thought we hadn't succeeded. Yeah, what? That's so strange that they were like, oh, well, the policeman just disappeared. Because, again, that's evocative of Sherlock Holmes's like, conflict with the police. But usually, you know, it's it's a conversation between the police and Sherlock, and then they, they disappear from each other, and the police show up at the end to take the credit. Yeah. Whereas in this one, we have the opposite, where we don't see them have a conversation with the police. Everything is just kind of implied, and then they just don't show up. Mm-hmm. Like the, what? It's also implied that Ho Sang just has the the relationship with the police to summon entire like platoons of them. Yeah. On his whim, he has that. Look, he's he's upgraded his rep high enough. He has special abilities now. He can just call in police whenever he wants. It's how it works. It's so weird. Um, and it's it's very strange. It's like it's a lot of fun as they go through like all of these really dumb tense moments of them going up in bad disguises to members of the crew. And they're just like, yes. oh, it's you, Hu Zing. And then five minutes later, it's yeah. like, oh, my goodness, you're telling me that the man that was a foot shorter and had a northern accent wasn't Hu Zing, who is tall and from and the south? I'm shocked. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what ha- well, 
Let's be clear. The exact phrase from Cookie, Cookie the Cook, is you're a secret agent <laughs> all along. Like, <laughs> I feel like that has to be a translation issue. It's so dodgy. The word secret agent is, yeah, it's very oh, dodgy. I love it. Also, uh, I love, because <laughs> about Mao Lang, we're going to, I'm going to, Flash forward a little bit. He he shoots a man in the throat and another man in the heart, basically on accident, and they kill a nine-year-old. We're gonna be jealous. A nine-year-old child on screen. Yes, and it's just fine. It's they like kill a nine-year-old even- child on screen, and their reaction is, <sighs> "Well, good thing it wasn't the child we were paid to rescue." Yes, is the that's the thing. Is that uh, it's revealed? I had I slightly suspected this, but like it's revealed that there is in fact two children on on the boat and there are two families who want to get their kid back. But the other family, like their family head is a like narcotics dealer. So it's okay if his kid gets killed, but it's not okay for the like charitable old principal man, whatever he is. His child's fine. Um, And they like in the moment, they try to play it off like a, a moment of genuine drama and then they have that switcheroo where they're like, it was the narcotics dealer's child. I guess that's fine. Like, what? It's such a weird disconnect. Also, it's like the two children are kept in different locations. So one of them's on the boat and the other has to be like rowed across from elsewhere. And Bao Lang nearly shoots said other kid in the face, but <laughs> only missing narrowly as he tries to shoot the guys in the rowboat escorting him. It's like, uh, it's it's very strange. It's, it's so chaotic and messy and i don't understand what ching shao king is trying to do here yeah because the moral equivalence that he's trying to draw yeah. between like the family honor of a narcotics dealer as opposed to a wizened old businessman who's managed to make himself successful it's so weird because i feel as though there is no distinction i'm not sure why the narcotics means like toxic chemicals we don't know it's not clarified at yeah, all. yeah it's it's literally a one word descriptor and the only other mention is that he's wealthy uh and that you know he'll be fine because he still has money and it's like well the other guy clearly also had money because he was willing to pay all of this ransom for his kid to come back there's just there's no distinction drawn here and i don't get it the thing is it's really just not a part of the moral part of the tale is the thing like, in my mind, he's justifying one child Seth because they were from a narcotics-selling family. But even that, we don't really know much about. So I'm not confident in that assertion. Yeah. But, but the the actual moral, because he has, for his saying, actually tell us the moral every time. I know that you'll never change your impatient ways. And this is to do with his uh, bowling jumping to conclusions. It's it's kind of similar to the, the examination paper story. Mm. Um, in that, you know, he thought that the child that died was the one they come to get. So he was really sad even though obviously you should be sad whenever somebody's child dies, but but yeah, in this case. And like Bao Lang, uh, not necessarily trusting Ho Sang to have a gun or like have a, a plan. Like these are all things that Ho Sang says, trust me, like it'll all work itself out. And Bao Lang is like, I don't know if it will. And so the lesson is to like trust in people and like not be so impatient to see immediate results, right? Yeah. Um, that's kind of the lesson that's being told. The other lesson is, is uh, a bit of a, a bit of a looser one, just about the South China Swallow. It's kind of the same, again, as the odd tenants, where, like, even though his methods aren't great and we don't necessarily trust the South China Swallow, we know um, that he's, he's like, he's a respectable 
person. He's a respectable adversary, right? But the methods that he uses are not as as like honorable, I guess, mm. as what we're saying. Being the first story that the South China Swallow was introduced in, I was fully expecting that it was going to end up that, you know, the kid gets shot and then the South China Swallow walks onto, <laughs> walks onto the scene and it's like, ah, now you won't get your reward, you yeah. petty Bao Lang. Yeah. But yeah. I was pleasantly surprised to be wrong about that. <laughs> as pleasantly surprised as one can be about the death of a child. I know, child murder. <laughs> it's it's never a particularly nice topic, but you know, we got to talk about it. Yeah, I know. Ching Chao King's uh, decisions here, some of his decisions are very, are very interesting in this story. But it, at the very least, it it does hit that swashbuckling tone. Yeah. Um, it does very much feel like an adventure. And like, like one of the chapters is called like The Bloody Battle. Mm. Uh, and it's very much about, again, the intellectual superiority of our main characters of Baolang and Hosang going up against this like nasty, monstrous pirate gang without completely, like, dehumanizing them either. I'm really looking forward to, as the show kind of goes on, getting into the, uh, the the other authors who were working alongside Chang and authors that may have learned from him as well and been inspired by the adventures of Huo yeah. and Bao Lang. Well, Herds, I think that is where we will wrap today's discussion. It has definitely been one of the weirdest weeks on the show for me for in sure. terms of what we have covered in this book. And I had a great bit of fun getting to show you through this one. Next week on the show, we are going to be talking about stories seven and eight at the ball and one summer night and herds. Your puzzle next week is to read story seven uh, parts one and two. Oh boy. And tell me what's going on there. Okay. That's I'm, your second I'm point. I'm excited. I'm ready to launch myself into Whatever that's going to be about, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. That will be our last week covering this. And then, Herds, you have to find us a book to go to next. I'm scared to see what you will pick. I got some ideas. I'm looking forward to it. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds talking at Cheng Shao King's Sherlock in Shanghai, translated by Timothy C. Wong. I'm very excited to get further into that with you next week. We will see you then. You've been listening to 2SER. 